Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining me today. There's something going on uh, that I've noticed in publishing, uh, historical publishing. So for many, many years, uh, it was difficult to find a mainstream, you know, New York published book that talked about the what I call the world's debt to the Catholic Church, or b- more broadly, the world's debt to the Christian faith. Well, as now we finally have started talking about uh, multiculturalism, and we're kind of judging the Western world by what we see in the surrounding world, all of a sudden books are coming out now that are beginning to praise what the church and what again the christian various christian traditions have contributed to western civilization tom holland uh again classical historian published just a magnificent book called dominion how the christian revolution remade the world and he's just one of a number of historians who are now starting to say hey wait a minute uh all this multicultural talk and we're praising you know this tradition or that tradition outside the western world outside europe outside of North America. Uh, let's take a look at what the Christian faith has contributed to human flourishing uh, in Europe, North America, South America, and now globally. And there's some great books being published. This is one of them, Dominion. Uh, again, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Tom Holland, my guest, coming up in this first hour. Also, I have a few words to say about the promise of Scripture in Dei Verbum. That's the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. It is one of my, maybe my favorite document among the Second Vatican Council documents. Uh, I have a few words to say on that, and then we're going to listen to a story of how Jeremy Christensen, being raised in a loving and devout Mormon home, began to grow older and began to question the principles of his faith and how that questioning led him to find solid answers in the Catholic Church. He'll be sharing his story. But first, today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 7th. It's the Feast of St. Engelbert of Cologne. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. It's Election Day in America. Voters in Ohio will decide whether to enshrine abortion access into the state constitution. Elsewhere, key races being closely watched include Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear and Mississippi Republican Governor Tate Reeves, each trying to win another term in office. It's been one month since Hamas gunmen staged a deadly surprise attack on Israel. More than 11,000 people have been killed on both sides of the conflict since the fighting began on October 7th. A man is in custody after he was spotted walking near the U.S. Capitol with a gun. The man was arrested in the park across from Union Station, a heavily trafficked area for those who work on Capitol Hill. 
U.S. Capitol Police say they have no reason to believe there's an ongoing threat at this time. The Supreme Court is deciding whether people who are the subject of protective orders should be allowed to keep their guns. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger argued that this should be an easy case to decide. The constitutional principle is clear. You can disarm dangerous persons. The case before the court involves a Texas man who assaulted his ex-girlfriend and threatened to shoot her if she told anyone. She got a restraining order. An appeals court ruled in the favor of her former boyfriend, saying that the gun ban violates the Second Amendment. Hollywood actors are rejecting studios' so-called last, best, and final offer as the strike rolls over into another day. SAG-AFTRA, the union representing some 160,000 striking actors, said there are still several items where there's no agreement. The biggest of those is the use of artificial intelligence and the use of people's likenesses without permission. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. On this program, we've often talked about the social process of secularization. This is the process by which religious ideas, uh, religious influence, individuals, uh, institutions are pushed to the margin of life, uh, no longer considered having very much public significance. And that's aided by an ideology called secularism, or secular humanism often, which again seeks to very consciously uh, push religious ideas out of the public square into the margins, eh, turning it into something of a hobby for us. At the same time, we've tried to point out that the Christian faith uh, remains much more alive and influential today than many people realize. There's been published recently a book called Dominion, uh, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by Tom Holland that I thought was exceptional, and I wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to talk to Tom. He's the author, as I said, of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. He's an award-winning historian of the ancient world, a translator of Greek classical texts, uh, a documentary writer. He's the author of six other books, including Rubicon, the recipient of the Hessel Tiltman Prize for History, and was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize, and also Persian Fire, win- winner of the uh, Anglo-Hellenic League's uh, Runciman Award. He contributes regularly to The Guardian, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, and lives in London. Tom, it's great to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. The thesis of the book, as, as I read it, is that Christian influence, for good or ill, uh, has been so all-pervasive that we've ceased even being aware of it. Uh, and the last, I mean, the last person able to identify water would be a fish, right? Because uh, they're so immersed in it, they have no counter-environment <laughs> by which to judge it. Yeah, the, uh... That, that was that was absolutely the metaphor I had in my mind as I was writing the book, that, that if the West is a goldfish bowl and we're the goldfish, then the waters that we swim in are completely Christian. Yeah. And it's only when you're removed from that goldfish bowl that you realize it. But actually, while I, while, a few months after I finished writing the book, um, an even better metaphor okay. me, <laughs> right. um, came from, um, from watching, there was a... a a, a series about uh, Chernobyl, the um, yes, Soviet nuclear yes. reactor that exploded. And um, I was watching it, and uh, they had um, two of the lead characters right next to the, the, the reactor, and you could see the radioactivity leaking, and it was ionizing the air, so it was very evident what was happening. But, of course, um, 
beyond Chernobyl in Kiev and Scandinavia and uh, Western Europe, people are breathing in the radioactivity, but they don't realise that they're breathing it in, but it's still affecting them. And by that, I don't, I don't mean that Christianity kills you or makes your head <laughs> or anything like that. But what I mean is that when you're at the heart of Christianity, if you're in a cathedral, if you're looking at the impact that the Bible has had, all things where, where the manifestations of Christianity are very, very evident, you, of course you recognize what is revolutionary and transformative about it. But there are all kinds of ways as well in which the influence of Christianity is harder to detect. And that's often because, by a kind of remarkable paradox, many things that may seem antithetical to Christianity, to be destructive of Christianity's claims, in fact, are bred of assumptions that are themselves deeply Christian. And you began by talking about the idea of secularism and the secular. Mm -hmm. And that would be a classic example, because the idea of the secular is not something that just hangs in the air waiting to be discovered. It's not something that every civilization and every culture and every country has had. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very distinctively Christian idea that is bred out of Christian theology and Christian history. And it's a measure of Christianity's influence that people across the world now take for granted that it exists. So Japan or India or Turkey all define themselves as secular, even though none of them are Christian countries. Interesting. Yes, very good. Uh, you have, uh, I recall, I'm not sure where I heard this. It might have been your discussion with E.C. Grayling. But um, you you are really much more interested in the classical world and its heroes uh, growing up than you were uh, Christianity. Is that true? Well, yes. Um, I, I, uh, I was brought up out of England here, here in Britain um, and went to church and uh, sung in the choir unbelievably because my voice is terrible uh, <laughs> and, and went to Sunday school. Um, but the awful truth was that I I was kind of like lots of horrible little boys. I preferred things that were kind of violent and glamorous. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, it was dinosaurs. And then I kind of seamlessly moved on to what is basically the Tyrannosaur of the ancient world, which is the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And I just found the Romans very, very, you know, kind of sexy, really. <laughs> um, and the awful thing is, is that if you'd asked me whose side, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 10, whose side was I on with Pontius Pilate or Jesus, I would completely have gone with Pontius Pilate <laughs> because he has the eagle, he has the robes, he has the soldiers, he has the centurions. And so when I, um, when I, when I grew up, I, uh, classical world was my great interest. That's what I began writing about. And so I wrote um, a book, Rubicon about the um, the age of Julius Caesar, uh, the collapse of the Roman Republic, and then I wrote uh, a, another book, Dynasty, about the um, the first imperial dynasty, Augustus and, and and his family, ending in Nero, and to make sense of a distant period, um, you can't try and portray it solely in terms of your own moral assumptions, your right. own. Uh, perspectives. You have to try and get inside the heads of these people. It's often very difficult because you know, they lived 2,000 years ago, but it was a sustained effort that 
took me you know, years of my life. Mm-hmm. And what I found when I did that was that these glamorous, terrifying figures were actually so terrifying that they began to seem increasingly alien to me. And much though I regret the fact that tyrannosaurs no longer exist, I wouldn't want one as a pet. <laughs> and in a similar way, fascinating though I find ancient Rome, I would not have wanted to live in it. Mm. And I, I began more and more to think, well, what is it that's changed? What is the process of transformation by which things that the Romans took for granted now seem to me unutterably terrifying and, uh, and often repellent? And a, a bit like when you have an itch, you know, an itch on the back and you can't quite find it, and then you discover it and you start scratching it, and it just feels great. I began to realize essentially that what had changed was the coming of Christianity, and that in trying to look at, at the pre-Christian world, there was a kind of haze of influence that was entirely Christian. And the obvious example of that, of course, is, is morals, ethics, which is really summed up by the idea of the cross, the way in which uh, what had been an emblem of, of torture, of power, of the right of a superpower to torture to death anyone who, who dared to oppose it. And this gets turned in, essentially into, in, in, into the opposite, about the, the victory of the victim over the victimizer. So a very profound moral revolution there. But it's also in all kinds of other dimensions as well, including, I don't know, how, how people understand time, how people understand sexual desire, all kinds of things like that, and including, as I said, you know, ideas of, of there being things like the secular. Essentially, almost everything that we take for granted is not human nature. It's culturally expressed. It's, it's a cultural materialization of the impact of Christianity on us. And it's only when you realize that that you start to realize, even if you're not a Christian, how profoundly shaped by Christianity all one's assumptions are. Was, let's take the idea of monogamy. What was, what was marriage look, what did it look like prior to the rise of Christianity in the Church? Well, the, the, the Romans were monogamous, but they were monogamous... It, it, their attitude to marriage was a bit like a kind of Rubik's Cube that you twist and turn it around. Mm-hmm. So people would divorce one another at the drop of a hat. Um, the Jews w- were... A man could have several wives. Uh, and uh, Paul, of course, is um, is a Jew, and so that's something that he takes for granted to begin with. Um, more, However, w- when he... Um, when he has his conversion, when he has this, this astonishing conviction that this um, person who has, this obscure criminal who's been tortured to death in some mysterious way that Paul can't quite pin down is a part of the one created God of the universe, he has to find a way of making sense of the idea of love that this sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross, what, what does this mean for individual human beings and their understanding of love? And so he constructs um, a model of human relations that replicates the relationship that Paul understands as existing between Christ and his church. 
And Paul casts the man in the relationship as Christ and the woman in the relationship as the church. Now, the implication of that is that Christ and his love for the church is something that is eternal. Mm -hmm. So therefore, divorce becomes an impossibility. And a man man has to choose the woman that he spends his life with. And so an entirely novel model of matrimony is starting to be constructed there. There's, there's, There's been nothing quite like this before that. But this has a further knock-on effect, which is about the very nature of sexual relations, which in the Roman world were pretty brutal. Um, for us, the, the, there's a kind of a, 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 a binary, which is it's, it's a man and a woman. For the Romans, that didn't really exist. For the Romans, it was about power. It was about whether you were a free male citizen um, or, or if you weren't. And if you were a female citizen, you could effectively do what you wanted to anyone of who, anyone, any inferior in your household, oh. male or female, it didn't really make a difference. So when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are Roman colonists, by and large, they're not, they're not Greeks, or when he's writing to the Romans, the people that he's writing to, the heads of the household, are people who have this power. And what Paul is saying is, no, close that down. You have to focus. You cannot just sleep with your scullery mate. You have to choose one person and you have to sleep with her and marry her. Tom, hold it there for a second. We'll pick it up from that point on the other side of the break, but I've got to take a break right now. Tom Holland, my guest, his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, our topic. Believers who respond to God's Word and become members of Christ's body are intimately united to Him, the Catholic Catechism tells us. In that body, those who believe are united with Christ through the sacraments in a very real and hidden way. The body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members who engage in a diversity of functions. The unity of the mystical body triumphs over all human divisions. As St. Paul says, there are no Jews, no Greeks, no slave, no free man. All are one in the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body of the church, the principle of creation and redemption. We are united with Christ in his Passover. All his members must strive to resemble him until Christ is formed in them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry very hard to say, very easy. 
on relationships. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Tom Holland, author of, most recently, of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. We were talking before the break, Tom, you were talking about the uh, change that uh, St. Paul's understanding of marriage introduced into the uh, ancient world. And uh, in the Roman world, the uh, head of the family, the sex was basically about power, and uh, it wasn't about the binary male or female. The one with power... Uh, could use for sexual gratification and for the expression of power uh, any uh, person who was his social inferior, uh, male or female. I imagine that also means bond or free, right? Yes, but if you were a slave, you were you were particularly vulnerable to this. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's institutionalized sexual abuse on a scale that that I think we would find hard to comprehend. Wow. wow. Um, what do you make of St. Paul's uh, writing in, in, I think it's First Corinthians 7, where he talks about the husband's body is not his own, but his wife's, and the wife's body is not her own, but her husband's. There's a reciprocity between male and female there that I think is novel, but uh, you tell me, you know better than I do. Uh, yes, it is. Um, and... I don't want to go into the details on <laughs> okay. about about what um, the, the the Roman attitude to um, sex, but just to suffice to say that it was it was pretty it was pretty different. Um, but the implications of of, of that ruling, the idea that um, if if Christ's relationship with His Church is mirrored in in a in, in, in a Christian marriage, then 
the man and the woman have responsibilities towards each other. Um, this ends up in the history of, the, of, of, of Latin Christendom. So by Latin Christendom, we mean the, the, the Western half of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And when the Western half of the Roman Empire collapses, the, the, the Eastern half, the Greek-speaking half, continues as a, as a Roman Empire right the way up until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. But the Roman Empire in the West collapses in the 5th century, and you get barbarian kingdoms that will ultimately emerge to become France and England and so on. They would call that Latin Christendom. And in Latin Christendom, over the course of the Middle Ages, this idea that men and women should choose one another again kind of precipitates an amazing social revolution. So this is an example of how theological assumptions can completely reconfigure the way that a society is organized. So in Roman times, as as I was hinting, the idea of a family, a familia, is closer to a kind of something from the Sopranos. It's a kind of mafiosi idea Mm -hmm. of a family, rather than the kind of nuclear family that we tend to have today in the West. And the the male head of that family, um, the Tony Soprano figure, he basically has a right to determine who within his familia should marry one another. So if he wants to keep things in the family, he can pair cousins off with cousins, second cousins off with second cousins. The church, over the course of the Middle Ages and before, sets itself very, very sternly against this. And it says that for cousins to marry one another, up to seven degrees of separation is effectively incest and therefore prohibited. Hmm. And the reason for doing that essentially is to shatter the right of, of patriarchal figures to determine who within their familiar should marry one another. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis is placed on reciprocity and individual choice. So people they may not imagine, may not think of church as the, the midwife of romantic love, but that's effectively what it becomes. Uh, and, and it becomes so enduring that even after the Reformation, this assumption that individual men and women have the right to choose each other, because by doing that, you are paying due respect to the idea of Christ's relationship to his church, remains a constant in Protestant as well as in Catholic countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the classic illustration of that is Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, where Capulet is the example of an old kind of patriarch. Juliet doesn't want to marry her cousin. She wants to marry Romeo. Mm-hmm. And who is it that allows Romeo and Juliet to marry one another? It's the fire. And this is something that then, you know, the Puritans who, who settle New England, they also take it. Um, the, the Puritan, you know, is kind of shorthand for, for someone who, who dislikes any form of sex, but that's not what the Puritans thought at all. The Puritans mm-hmm. thought that a man and a woman should properly love one another in every sense of that word. Um, what Puritans were against was the idea that men should go around behaving as a, as a, as a Roman head of a household had done and, and sleeping and harassing anyone he wanted. And so there's kind of a, 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 a paradox that's very evident in um, America at the moment, I think, speaking well, as an outsider. 
Would you see the ha- the hashtag Me Too movement as a, a reassertion? I would. Of a fundamentally Christian <laughs> yes, understanding? I would. Because, I, I would. Because as I was writing this book, I was thinking, well, and I was looking at the 60s and everything that has happened since the 60s, and I was thinking, well, I have to say that, that, that Christian sexual morality does seem to have slightly gone into abeyance across the West. Um, but then as I was writing it, uh, the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke and the Me Too movement developed. And increasingly, you'd see um, Me Too protesters wearing the robes of handmaids, as in the Margaret Atwood novel and the TV drama adapted from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, The Handmaid's Tale is a satire on, on, on New England. It's a satire on, on Puritanism. But effectively, by dressing up in these robes, <laughs> protesters are demanding that men behave like Puritans. They're demanding that they display continence, that they display um, uh, self-control, that yep. they don't assume that uh, if they have uh, a position of social superiority over inferiors, that that means that they can sexually harass them. And I think the key to, to, to the Me Too movement and what it suggests about America is that it wouldn't have worked unless men as well as women had overwhelmingly agreed with the point that was being made, that it was unacceptable for women to be sexually harassed. And when you look at that in the context of 2,000 years of Christian history, you're beginning with the Roman world, with a society where that is not remotely taken for granted. And so the measure of the, the incredible transformation that Christianity has brought about is that today people take for granted something that would have been absolutely bizarre to the head of a Roman household. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You give another striking example of, uh, within our last generation, of an example of Christian influence that was probably unrecognized at the time, and you, uh, in fact, it's in the chapter called Love, and it begins on Sunday, June 25th, 1967. Set that up for us, would you? Yes. Um, so uh, this is to my side of the Atlantic and to uh, Abbey Road Studios in London, where the Beatles um, sang All You Need Is Love live on television. And it was a global satellite link up the first time that this had been done. And um, the Beatles, of course, were, were famous for rejecting institutional Christianity. John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Right. George Harrison became Hindu. Um, Paul McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, which, uh, among other things, was a kind of portrayal of the fading of institutional Christianity. But there's a case saying that the assumptions that governed so many of the Beatles' most famous songs, All You Need Is Love, Give Peace a Chance, uh, Imagine No Possessions, (laughs) these are all deeply Christian sentiments. Um, And so therefore you kind of, it it seems to me that the Beatles are pied pipers for a convulsion in Christian society that is on a par with the Reformation. And what happens, I think, with the 60s is that Christian assumptions, assumptions that are bred of specific Christian theology, Christian doctrines, Christian history, the ropes that have moored them, that have moored these assumptions to Christian theology, get cut, and 
I think you can see that if you if you think about the 60s as a development of something that was happening in the 50s, which is probably the last great pan-American Christian revolution, which is the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Martin Luther King is, you know, he's a Baptist preacher. His his oratory is marinated in in the phrases in phrases from the Bible in the cadences of the Bible. And what he is doing is doing what Christians in America had repeatedly done, which is to try and awaken American Christians, to try and call them to a sense of repentance for their sins mm-hmm. and to um, purge America of, 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 of wrong. And Martin Luther King is calling white Americans to a recognition of the fact that if there's no Greek or Jew, then there is no black or white. Um, And he does this in the name of love, and he calls Jesus an extremist for love. And this is a a deep, the civil rights movement is a deeply, deeply Christian movement. And of course, the soundtrack to it are songs about Exodus, about Elijah, um, that, that, that Black Americans have been singing for generations, but more specifically, it's also the uh, the music of the of the black churches in the South. Now, in England, the impact of the civil rights movement and the impact of this uh, music from the black churches on Liverpool is profound. Hugely influences the Beatles, so that when the Beatles go to America, they have it written into their contracts that they won't play before segregated audiences. Interesting. And their music is is hugely influenced by the music of the black churches. But the the Beatles don't recognize the theological implications of that. They don't realize, they just just take all of it for granted. And so by the time you get to 67, 1967, the summer of love, that idea of love is very much in the air. And all you need is love is the kind of the great anthem of it. But because the idea of love has been cut from its Christian theological moorings, the idea of love can take on all kinds of implications that it hadn't previously had. Particularly, it can take on the idea that love is, is, should be sexual. Yeah. And you start to get towards the end of the 60s, the first time really in, in, in the history of the West, the idea that um, Christian ideas of sexual ethics should be, should be got rid of, that they're repressive, and that people should go back to the pagan ideas, the mm-hmm. Dionysus ideas of sexual liberation. Tom, could you stay with me another segment? I can. Very good. Tom Holland, my guest, Christian Revolution That Remade the World, our top. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. 
In my 30 plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Did you know that the church calls your family to be holy? It's true. Now, don't freak out. The church isn't holy because the people in it are anywhere near perfect. It's holy only because Jesus is holy and because the Holy Spirit lives and works in it. And the same thing is true about your domestic church. Our families don't need to be perfect. We only need to open ourselves to God's grace so that we can share his love, healing, and forgiveness with each other and with the people we meet every day out in the world. Remember, holiness isn't restricted to grand gestures. It's as simple as doing ordinary, everyday things in a way that shows God's love. For more tips on living a holier life as a family, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Tom Holland, award-winning historian of the ancient world and uh, author most recently of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Uh, When I started doing talk radio, it was uh, summer of 1987, and at that time in the United States, um, a segment of the evangelical world was uh, all taken up with a little booklet that had been published called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And 
it seems to me that this idea of the imminent soon return of Jesus uh, has been uh, been an ongoing concern for segments of Christendom, th- you know, throughout our history. Even in the pages of the New Testament, many scholars will mention the 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 expectation of the parousia and the soon return of Jesus. How does that play into Christian um, um, the cultural consequences of that belief? What are they? Again, I think um, uh, it's pretty profound. Um, because what it does is to set a, a definite end point on time. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with the, with the book of Genesis, the idea that there is a definite start point to time, the assumption of most philosophers, uh, priests in, in the world into which Jesus is born, that, that time is, is cyclical, that it goes round and round and round, this is quite a, a, a dramatic break. It's not something that begins with Christianity. The roots of this idea lie in um, in Persia. Hmm. The idea that there will be a kind of you know, that there is a beginning, and then that there is, will be a climactic day of judgment. But the the Book of Revelation, which uh, many many uh, early Christians are nervous about, uh, and it, it doesn't end up being part of the, the New Testament in in the Greek world, in the Orthodox world, until quite late. Um, but the power of the language in it, the power of the, the, the poetry and the, the, mm-hmm. the potency of the prophecy that it articulates is such that it, it's kind of like, um, for many Christians, it's, it's, it's like a kind of drug that it seems to expand the consciousness, but it can also give you hallucinations. <laughs> and so the Church Fathers are very, very anxious to ensure that people don't use it to speculate too much. Mm-hmm. And so the key figure in that is uh, Augustine, the great uh, Latin, um, the father of the Latin Church, um, the bishop, uh, North African bishop, who says that it, it, you shouldn't speculate when, when the end of days is going to happen. And that the numbers that are the the use of the uh, thousand and so on in, uh, in 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 Revelation isn't is is an abstraction. It's not a, a literal number, um, and this essentially remains the orthodoxy of of the church. But people cannot resist it, and right, right. this is particularly the case, unsurprisingly, in in the Latin Church in the build up to the first millennium, so the year one thousand, and. Although it's underground, although you don't tend to get too many people in a position of power articulating this, it does seem that you, what you get in the, the build-up to the, the millennium and then the decades that follow it, and particularly the decades that follow the year 1033, which of course is the millennial anniversary of the crucifixion and the resurrection, mm-hmm. is a process of change in Latin Christendom so profound that I think you can call it a, a, a revolution. And in fact, those who steer it call it a, a reformatio, a, a remaking. And these revolutionaries seize control of the most significant office in the Latin Church, which of course is the Bishopric of Rome. Sure. And you get these... Effectively, Europe's first revolutionaries are the popes of the second half of the 11th century and 
their servants, their agents. And the idea that the church is is a bride, the bride of Christ, mm-hmm. and therefore must be kept profoundly pure, and that must be readied for a kind of a, a, a time of reckoning. All of this seems bred of the kind of swirl of apocalyptic yearnings and imaginings that's been part of the uh, the kind of the, the flux of the politics and the culture of Europe in the 11th century. And it may seem kind of unimaginably remote, obscure, distant period sure. from the point of view of, uh, you know, Americans in the 21st century. But the weird thing is, is that this is basically what makes everything in the West. Because what happens is that the idea that society itself can be renewed, that society can be born again, that society can be washed in the waters of baptism and be cleansed, comes to be taken for granted. And the attempt by these reforming popes in the 11th century to remake society, to fashion the church as something pure, and intact and virginal results in, 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 in something incredibly radical, which is the idea that, um, which had been taken for granted not just in, in, in Europe, but across the whole of Eurasia, the idea that if you are an earthly autocrat, then you have a right to interfere in the business of the supernatural. This is what the church in the 11th century sets itself against. Wow. It says that kings, for instance, who are trying to appoint bishops or so on, are essentially like rapists putting their hands on the on on the radiant purity of the church, and they're not allowed to do it. And so you have this convulsive process of conflict lasting almost a century, whereby the right and the ability of earthly empires and kings to poke their noses into the business of the church is is ended, and the church establishes itself as something sovereign, as something distinct, and the process of doing this results in all kinds of convulsions, one of which is that you get very militant warriors who are pledged to defend this process of reformatio. They go to Jerusalem, and we call them crusades. They fight the Muslims in Spain. They they go to the Baltic to fight the pagans there. But you also get um, attempts to construct uh, clerks, intellectuals who can provide kind of ballast for this sovereign idea of the church that's being constructed. And this results in the, the foundation of novel institutions that come to be called universities. And they start to construct entire frameworks of law that try and work out what, God's, what God wants from the kind of earthly frameworks of law. Uh, and these lawyers start to construct radical new ideas such that if, for instance, the rich have an obligation to care for the poor, then that must mean that the poor have things called rights. And so you start to get this radical idea that humans have rights. And so you can see that the the, the church in medieval Europe, which often, if, 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 if... since the Enlightenment in particular, but, but, but also from the, the, the Reformation, has been cast as something backward, as something stultified. It's the opposite. This yeah. is, this is the primal revolutionary society. And this process of reformatio, this process of wanting to cleanse and purify and improve the whole of society, which 
the reformers of the 11th century push through sets up the kind of model which then repeats itself over the course of subsequent Western history. So what we call the Reformation is just another bout of Reformatio. And you can see elements that took place in the 11th century happening in the 16th century. But also what we call the Enlightenment is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And ideas of the Enlightenment, the idea that people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, the idea that idolatry is something to be overthrown, the idea that superstition is something to be banished, these aren't ideas that Voltaire is inventing. He's drawing on the Reformation, but the Reformation in turn is drawing on ideas that go back to the missionary movements in early medieval Europe. Right. And those in turn are drawing on the biblical inheritance of the New Testament and of the Hebrew prophets. Amen. So <laughs> the very idea of these ideas are so shot through with Christian assumption that even the Enlightenment, which you might think is a great, you know, the great repudiation right, of right. Christianity, is actually just another manifestation of it. Tom, while we're on that, let's go to an idea which continues to have enduring power in our culture, and that is the idea that science and faith, or science and theology, are locked in ongoing warfare. Uh, In the 19th century in the United States, Uh. there were two very important books published, I think in England as well, um, about the history yeah. of the warfare between science uh, with theology. Anyways, you know the theme I'm talking about. And it's it, science and religion, isn't it? It's, it's, it's science yes. and religion is what they, they say. Yeah. And both of those words in English, science and religion, we might be tempted to assume that they're unproblematic. So you will get people who will talk about you know, ancient Greek religion or Arab science or whatever, as, as though these are words that can be taken back into the past unproblematically. But it's a bit like saying that, that Julius Caesar conquered France. It, you kind of know what that means, but it's not right, because <laughs> France didn't exist. Yes, okay. you know, conquered Gaul. Um, and the word religion, so we talked about, um, about, about secularism. Basically, the, the idea of, of, of secularism derives from... Uh, a, a, a Latin word, cyclum, which means the flux of things, the limits of, of human memory. So it's, it's stuff that it gets swept on on the river of time. And you have to counterpoint that. You need something that will bind you to the eternity of God. And Latin, the Latin word for that is religio. So the church promises religio, a binding to what's eternal. And counterpoint that to the cyclum, which is endless flux and churn. So over the course of, of, of the centuries and then the millennium, this comes to embody the, the idea that there is something called the secular, which can be distinguished from something called religion. And this gets sped up by the, the, the process in the 11th century that I was describing, where the church extracts itself from earthly realms, what it calls the cyclum. And then the Reformation, which democratizes the idea that everyone has a religion, everyone has a kind of binding to God. Mm-hmm. And so you end up, by the time that, that the United States is, is uh, founded, with the idea that there is something called the secular, and there is something called religion, which is separate from the secular. And this is something very, very distinctive to Western Europe and to America as it emerges. And so that's where the idea of religion comes from. By the 19th century, that's what religion has come to mean. Then you have, what is science? Is there a, is there a you know, the, 
Greeks have a name for science? Did the Romans have a name for science? No. And in fact, nobody had a name for science until the 19th century. Again, because <laughs> the, the concept didn't exist. Right. What you do have in the Middle Ages, in this period of revolution, when universities are starting to be founded, is the idea that God's laws are manifest in everything. And God, of course, is all-powerful. He can do anything he likes. Uh, you know, any miracle, he can, he can do whatever he wants. But it's evident from both the Old and the New Testaments that God is willing to draw up covenants, that he's willing to submit himself to legal agreements. And more than that, that, as we know from Genesis, that he's created men and women in his image, and therefore men and women presumably have a spark of the divine reason that would enable them to fathom these laws. Yes. And so over the course of the Middle Ages in universities, you get people who, as well as trying to fathom the theological laws, the moral laws, they're also trying to fathom the laws that are manifest in the cosmos. And these, over the course of time, come to be the laws that underpin what, by the 19th century, are coming to be called science. So again, it's a, it's a distinctive way of understanding the universe that is not a universal. It's not something that you get in China. It's not something that you get in India or the Muslim world. It's very, very distinctive to the Christian world, which is why the idea that there's been an eternal battle between religion and science is ridiculous. <laughs> it's a whole category mistake. Start to, it's a massive category mistake, yeah. but it's, it's, it's not entirely a category mistake. Because what is the definition of science? When it comes to be defined in the 19th century, basically it's defined as knowledge that does not depend upon revelation. Right. And so essentially science is being defined as what religion is not. So if you think of, of, of religion as the photograph, then science is the photographic negative. Tom, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, thank you so much for the work in Dominion. Uh, I hope we can talk again. I hope so. Thanks very much for having me. Tom Holland, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child, what is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem, starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere this Friday. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Father Benedict Groeschel. I usually am operating on the gifts of the Holy Spirit when I don't feel well, even when I'm annoyed, when I'm down and out. During my recovery from the automobile accident, immense numbers of people wrote to me and sent me emails, 50,000, and they told me how helpful they thought my talks on EWTN were to them. I'm delighted, but I want you to know I'm nobody's fool. The talks that were helpful, the sentences that were helpful, the phrases that were helpful came from the Holy Spirit. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the styrofoam packaging came from me. I did that. And styrofoam doesn't amount to very much. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. And good afternoon. Tom's book is available in the online bookstore over at AveMariaRadio.net. That again is AveMariaRadio.net. It is funny to watch uh, a number of books come out over the last 10 years that have begun to celebrate what the Catholic Church and more broadly the Christian faith has contributed to human flourishing. I hope it's a publishing trend that's going to continue for a long time. I'm Al Cresta. Stay tuned. We're going to have uh, the promise of Scripture in Dei Verbum, the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And then Jeremy Christensen shares his story from being a faithful Mormon to a faithful Catholic. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thanks much. Uh, good for have you with me. I'm Al Cresta, and uh, I'm actually thumbing through a few things here that I want to share with you in the first segment of this hour. The Second Vatican Council had a number of documents that are magnificent. Some of them, not so. I mean, in terms of, they show the fingerprints of a committee. But there are some of the documents which are just wonderful to live in. And one of those documents that I have most enjoyed is Dei Verbum. It's the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. And it was considered a major move forward in Catholic understanding of how sacred scripture is interpreted, applied, and, of course, obeyed. Perhaps the key insight of the document is that while God does communicate to us using propositions, you know, sentences, he does disclose material, uh, stuff, content, but more importantly than that, he discloses himself. Divine revelation is not so much about the content but it's about the encounter. And so we're going to take time in the first segment of today's program to just talk a little bit about the promise of Scripture in Dei Verbum. And then we're going to hear a story from Jeremy Christensen, raised in a loving and devout Mormon home and family, and had a few years of teenage rebellion, but eventually found his place in Mormonism. But as he grew older, he began to question, and um, his search for answers led him to the Catholic Church, now, there's something interesting about those who are raised within the Mormon faith. Mormonism, its so-called prophet, Joseph Smith, claimed that he was restoring the church in the 19th century. In other words, the priesthood had disappeared, and now it was up to him to bring forward new revelation that would restore the priesthood and the church. 
Well, it was a direct attack upon Catholicism, of course. And so Catholics in particular have a very, uh, have a greater interest in uh, Mormonism and its challenge than maybe some other uh, aberrant sub-Christian groups. So stay with me. We're going to have that story coming up a little bit later. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 7th. It's the Feast of St. Engelbert of Cologne. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need. Visitingangels.com. The Biden administration is stressing that Israel has a right to defend itself from Hamas as the administration faces growing pressure to push for a ceasefire. 1,400 people slaughtered in their homes at a music festival. And when Hamas decided to conduct operations, it was with the intent of killing people. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said President Biden has discussed brief humanitarian pauses with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to allow aid to get into Gaza. Netanyahu says his country is open to, quote, little pauses in fighting as he rejects calls for a ceasefire. More than 11,000 people have been killed in total on both sides of the conflict since Hamas's surprise attack on Israel a month ago today. An investigation is in full swing into what led to the death of a Jewish man during dueling pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Southern California. During a Tuesday morning news conference, Ventura County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Christopher Young revealed how 69-year-old Paul Kessler died. The cause of death has been certified as blunt force head trauma. The manner of death is homicide. The demonstrations happened Sunday in Thousand Oaks. Kessler died in the hospital on Monday. Initial reports were that Kessler, holding a flag of Israel, got into an argument with a pro-Palestinian demonstrator and was struck in the head with a megaphone. Investigators cannot confirm that and are asking for cell phone video to help with the investigation. I'm Phil Hewlett. And the Cathedral of the Annunciation in Stockton, California was vandalized. White paint was splattered across the church's sign and front doors. Local police are investigating whether the vandalism constitutes a hate crime. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I uh, sat in on uh, Marcus Peters' program, Unveiling the Covenants, and we talked about the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II. It's called Dei Verbum, or that's Latin, very simply, Word of God. And a lot of times, as we talk about documents, Catholic documents from Vatican II, people get, you know, they feel distant from them. Not everybody runs around with a collection of the documents of Vatican II uh, in their in the glove box of their car or something. So it seems far away. This one, this particular document, it's a, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, is a big deal. It was a big deal at the time. It, they started working on it in November of 1962, and it went right on through, uh, you know, with some starts and stops, obviously. Uh, they released it in November, I think it was November of 65. So a lot of time and thought went into it. It is rich, and it's it really, it fires up the soul. But what I'd like to do, I'd like to just point out what this, what the promise of Scripture is from the way it's described in this dogmatic constitution of divine revelation. It has a little prologue at the beginning of it. It goes this way. Hearing the word of God with reverence 
and proclaiming it with faith. The Sacred Synod assents to the words of St. John, who says, We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the key to the whole document. The Word of God is not just uh, given to us to um, reveal the plan of God or to give us information about the way he created the universe. The Word of God is a disclosure of God himself. And that's what the Vatican Council Fathers were excited about. Because they were uh, working to try to let all Christians know, actually, that with the inspiration of Scripture, we have not just the superintendence of the documents so that they are without error, but with the inspiration of Scripture, we have God's very breath. It's theopneustos is, is the Greek word that describes uh, what the, how the Scripture comes to us. God breathed, and St. Paul describes it this way to Timothy. Now, so think about that just a minute. Just God's breath, he is breathing to us in the Scripture. And, of course, Holy Spirit is really holy breath, the word there for spirit, and it also doubles as the word for breath. Um we proclaim to you, this is from John, so this is from the apostolic band, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. So, again, they're not just given a historic description here, which would be, not, that would be nice enough if they did that, but they do much more. They proclaim life. These words have life. I always like to quote, for the word of God is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the human heart. Um, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God will be perfectly furnished for all good works, or perfectly equipped for all good work. Again, to Timothy, study to show yourself approved uh, unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly interpreting the word of truth. These are passages from Scripture that uh, the dogmatic constitution divine revelation wants to bring to our attention. And I thought I, I would just take a moment here and go over some of the things we may t- already we may take for granted and we shouldn't for instance we know that around the world over history a concept of god or gods or some sort of divine intelligence or some sort of divine power some force that is beyond us that that's fairly natural you find that everywhere you go um but it's really only within the Hebrew Christian tradition that you find not only a God who is there, but a God who's not silent. I guess you could throw Islam in there too, although 
it, that's problematic for reasons we can't get into right now. It certainly is not divine revelation, but it's it's presented by Muslims as though it were. Uh, Dave Urban is very clear that there's no public revelation beyond the uh, Hebrew and Christian scriptures. But I, I want to stress this, that God's not only there, he's not silent. He speaks. Uh, we, in this uh, document itself, Dave Urban, Word of God, we learn that in reading the scriptures, we hear God talking to his children. And much is made of the idea that when we pray, we talk to God. And when we invest ourselves in reading Scripture, he's talking to us. So if you look around the world, and so you've got all these concepts of God, which are, you know, oftentimes human projections, or sometimes there's insight into the divine nature uh, that might show up here and there. But it's only in the Hebrew Christian tradition that we actually have a written crystallization of the Word of God. Over 1,400 years, this library of materials was created, going back, usually the Exodus, up to the second half of the first century of the Christian era, A.D. It's it's remarkable, because there's 40-plus different authors of this library we call the Bible. Uh, Not only... Uh, do we have all these authors? But they're, they're not all literary scholars. They're not all seers. Uh, they're not all prophets. Uh, we have a tent-making rabbi. We have a Gentile physician. Uh, we've got fishermen, and we have herdsmen. We have princes, and we have military uh, leaders. Well, we have uh, just old, plain old soldiers. Uh, we've got, uh, of course, prophets. We have visionaries. We have historians, we have uh, memoirs, we have diaries. All these make up this library that we call sacred scripture. And here's the point. Over 1,400 years, 40 different writers, all these different literary forms, and there is a theme, what uh, people like to call a macro-narrative, that runs through from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Some people call it the scarlet thread dealing with the blood covenant. But whatever you say, from Genesis to Revelation, you do get a coherent narrative, a story about what life is all about. It is without uh, without peer and without uh, duplicate among the religions of the world. Uh, again, Hindus have many different uh, documents that they venerate, but they do not make any attempt uh, to tell a coherent story over, you know, 1,500 years. So the, we should really keep in mind the unique uh, features of sacred scripture. should also mention, too, that sacred scripture has had a, a profound impact upon uh, the culture that we're so comfortable with or have been comfortable with. It's, it's impacted government and law. Uh, intellectual historians uh, like to point out that the concept of human rights and the autonomy of the individual can be traced back to Scripture. Uh, the people talk about art, literature, and music. Uh, I'll just mention music in particular here, because look at the the Western orchestral tradition. You've got the, the great Bach cantatas, his passion according to St. Matthew, the B minor master, you have Handel's Messiah, 
again, a sacred oratorio. Uh, Jephthah, again, dealing with a biblical character. Israel in Egypt. You have um, Mendelssohn, ben Felix Mendelssohn, uh, has Elijah. You can go to Beethoven, uh, his Misa Solemnis, which he thought was his greatest work. Uh, and he also has a meditation on uh, Christ uh, at the Mount of Olives. You, you can go down the list. The, the scriptures have had a profound impact on the formation of the art, the music, and the literature of the world. And I would argue, too, that the biblical understanding of reality is the basic presupposition that gave rise to what today we call science. Um, I keep going back to the, old, the statement of Alfred North Whitehead. It said, the medieval emphasis on the rationality of God is the uh, assumption behind the scientific uh, enterprise. So, Dave Urban, Dave Urban, Word of God, calling our attention to Scripture, um, but also tradition. Because revelation comes to us in a written crystallization that we call Scripture, but there's also the tradition, which includes the example of the apostles. It includes the liturgy. So Dave Bourbon pushes us to, again, unite Scripture and tradition, and, and really to remember, really to remember the great blessing that we have in Holy Scripture. So I made a little list. I made a little list of what Scripture gives us. Dave Verbum, Word of God, the document tells us we should venerate Scripture, contemplate Scripture, read and study Scripture, and we should preach Scripture. And what do we get? <laughs> if that's what we lay down, that's what we're putting on the table, what are we going to get for doing that? Well, number one, we get God himself. He communicates his Word which is an extension of his person. He communicates himself so that we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis uh, quoting St. Anselm, uh, who said, the Son of God became man, that man might become sons of God. So this is uh, the, the, what we call uh, theosis in the Orthodox tradition, or divinization, or deification. But we, we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, God reveals himself in an unalterable word. It doesn't change. It's not like what you get with all these uh, New Age channelers uh, who will say one thing one day and something contrary the next. No, you get God's unalterable word. You get the voice of the Holy Spirit. It enlightens the mind. It strengthens the will. It fires the heart. It builds us up. It gives us the inheritance. It bestows hope upon us. It's a storehouse of divine teaching and wisdom. It's a treasury of prayers. And it all comes together to give us the mystery of salvation presented in Scripture in a hidden way. Read it. What does the Catholic Catechism teach about divorce? The Church does not permit divorce in a valid marriage because she is firmly adhering to the rules set down by her founder. Jesus Christ made it very clear that a sacramental valid marriage was not to be dissolved. Whoever divorces his wife, he declared, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Therefore, the Church maintains a second marriage cannot be recognized as valid if the first marriage is valid. 
The Catechism tells us if the divorced are remarried civilly, they find themselves in a situation that objectively contravenes God's law. In such a situation, they may not receive Eucharistic communion as long as this situation persists. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession, and when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem, starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere this Friday. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Jeremy Christensen, was raised in a loving and devout Mormon home, and despite some teen years of rebellion, did find himself largely at home in the Mormon church. As he grew older, though, he began to question some of the principles of his faith. The result is his 
entry into full communion with the Catholic Church. The story is told in From the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church. Jeremy, good to make your acquaintance. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on, Al. Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, you were raised in a devout home, so your your parents were serious about uh, their faith. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we went to church every Sunday. Uh, we said morning and evening prayers together every day as a family. Um, we read the Book of Mormon every morning as a family. So, you know, very, very devout. Faith was really a center of our home life and, and still is. My parents are still um, very devout Mormons, um, and most of my siblings are as well. Hmm. So you write that when you hit your teen years, you started with some rebellion. Why? <laughs> you know, that's a good question, uh, why. I, I don't know that all these years later I have um, the the best answer for it. I think it's a mix of a mix of all things of sort of uh, kind of teenage angst, not having a great outlet, um, falling in with, you know, not the best set of, yeah. of friends, like other friends who, who weren't necessarily, you know, really looking to be active in the LDS church. And, and so, yeah, you know, I had, I had some pretty rough years there as a teenager, uh, but kind of came out on the other end of that, uh, you know, through doing the things my parents had taught me, you know, reading the Book of Mormon and praying to to know if, if it's true and if Joseph Smith was a prophet. You know, I had a an experience um, that Mormons refer to as, as receiving a testimony mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and, you know, becoming very, very convinced that uh, that it was true, yeah. um, you know, late in my high school years, just before I, I left and, and became a, an LDS missionary. So, so you did you did go on to be a missionary. Um, I and, did. I, I uh, was in uh, the greater Buenos Aires area in Argentina for two years. To explain this is this is critical to I think uh, to understanding Mormonism from what I've studied of it, and it's this idea of the testimony, sometimes called the burning in your bosom, the, this mm-hmm. kind of self attestation of the Book of Mormon. Um, you're not are you are you are you ever encouraged to investigate the origins of the Book of Mormon or compare American archaeological sites with sites mentioned in the Book of Mormon, or does it rest entirely on this sense that God's Holy Spirit has borne witness to your spirit that the Book of Mormon is true? You know, Al, I, I think it's it's mostly, it's generally the latter, uh, and and that that it's more that people have this experience first mm-hmm. and then because of that experience are pretty willing to see you know fairly tenuous connections yes. between say um you know ancient um, american archaeology and you know the parallels between that and the the, the peoples and characters and circumstances that are depicted in the book of mormon but also to sort of overlook the the pretty obvious lack of parallels, the, mm-hmm. you know, the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon that, that speak to things that didn't exist, um, you know, in, in pre-Columbian times. So 
it's it's a little bit of both, but certainly members are not encouraged to say, you know, read a scholarly historical work that is not approved by the church yeah. about say the you know the founding of Mormonism or the production of the Book of Mormon from a from a historical perspective. When you were trained to be a missionary, um, did you learn? Uh, was it your job to present Mormon doctrine? How, what were you trying to yeah. do? Yeah. So as a as a as a missionary, you're not given any kind of really deep Mormon theological training at all. You spend, if you're a foreign language missionary, you'll spend anywhere from uh, eight to sixteen weeks at a training center in Provo, Utah, at least that's how it was when I was there, mostly learning the basics of a language um, around the structure of presenting, you know, pretty structured set lessons that you teach to people. And Mormon missionaries are not generally going to engage in, you know, a dispute about the origins of the Book of Mormon, Mm -hmm. and will pretty generally do what they're trained to do, which is to fall back on their testimony and bear testimony to you and tell you, well, I know it's true, and you can know it too if you read and and just pray and ask God. And um, and as a missionary, you you move on from people who, if if someone were to present... um, you know, claim to say, hey, I, I remember this being in a in an evangelical bookstore in Argentina, uh, and a couple of, of Protestant evangelicals saying, you know, what about this this particular text in the Book of Mormon? And there was a change in the text, and it seems to change the theology of the Book of Mormon. How can that be? And and really, it's more from the perspective of the Mormon missionary, you know, this person wants to be antagonistic and, yeah. and isn't ready to hear the truth, and you just you just move on. You move on, right, right. Yeah, that's I've noticed that in my encounter with Mormon missionaries. Uh, they, they don't really do apologetics. Uh, they, no, in fact, they're generally told not to, that the, right. this idea of, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. There's a passage in the Book of Mormon where... Jesus is depicted as resurrected and visiting the ancient inhabitants of the Americas and and tells them that contention is of the devil. And in some sense that's that's a you know a true principle at, at, at some level, but it is often used to sort of discourage de- sort of legitimate debate about something. And Mormon missionaries are generally taught, you know, if you get into a a logical Bible bashing, you know, scenario no good's going to come of it, yeah. so you right. really just avoid that, and and it's really you know at some at some level a way that that those more difficult issues are are avoided, right? Not not discussing the, the origins of the Book of Mormon or or various issues in early Mormon history. Mm-hmm. Now, I have some familiarity with Mormonism from study over the years, but uh, many of our listeners really don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. much about Mormonism. Uh, they've met Mormons, uh, probably have a high view uh, yeah. of the Mormon approach to the family, 
um, their involvement in pro-life activities. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're in California, their fight against same-sex so-called marriage. So, mm-hmm. you know, not not generally not hostility, but not much awareness of what Mormonism actually teaches as fundamental to their story. Could you give us a brief overview? Yeah. Uh, so Mormonism posits, as a general matter, that the things that Mormonism teaches and believes that are distinctive were taught by Jesus and his apostles, uh, but that after the death of the last of the apostles, legitimate priestly authority was lost from the earth, and the true Christian teachings were corrupted over time, and this resulted in a great apostasy, and that God restored Christ's true church to the earth, um, you know, in in a series of revelations to Joseph Smith, uh, who was a young man living in upstate New York, in beginning in, in supposedly in 1820 is when this when this starts. Part of that process was revealing to Joseph Smith where there were, were buried gold plates that had uh, a record of ancient American people who had immigrated from the Middle East uh, and landed in the Americas and were and had prophecies about Christ and, and practiced Christian religion. Uh, and, you know, Joseph Smith purported to see receive a number of, of other revelations, and, and the, the Church is built around this idea of, of having a prophet at the head mm-hmm. who receives continuing revelation from God about what to do with the Church. And in the time period, you know, where Joseph Smith had first formed the Church, he purported to receive a lot of revelations on the true nature of God, for instance, claiming that that the Father, God the Father, was was once a man, uh, like we are, and that God the Father has a physical body of flesh and bone, and, and that we existed as spirits prior to our birth, that we lived with God, and that we are in this, what they call, plan of salvation, where we've been sent to earth to get a physical body for our spirit to reside in, and to, by keeping God's commandments, return and become gods ourselves mm. in in heaven, and this is what they call exaltation, and then to to continue that process on into into eternity of having spirit children of your own and repeating that process of sending them to get physical bodies and come back. So this is this is really quite different than any form of Christianity that I'm aware of. So how was how were the early Mormons received by surrounding Christian churches and communities? Yeah, so Part of the trick there is that uh, Mormonism evolved rapidly between its official founding in 1830 Mm -hmm. uh, to the time where Joseph Smith started to have these more esoteric kind of doctrines in the 1840s, just before he was killed. Okay. And so in the earliest time in Mormonism, and if you actually, if you read the Book of Mormon carefully, if you were to just pick it up and read it, um, 
it actually teaches a very different theology of the nature of God. It, it teaches what what is referred to as modalism, which is a, a heresy, right. but that teaches the numerical identity of the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that teaching is sort of all throughout the Book of Mormon, and and kind of reads like somebody who was not particularly theologically educated who right. lived in frontier America might think about the Trinity or try to solve the mystery of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, but they evolved. So sort of earlier on, they were much more adjacent to Christianity, but that, that changed over time okay. in relation to the nature of God. Jeremy, hold it there. We'll come back, continue the conversation. My guest is Jeremy Christensen. He's uh, sharing with us his story from uh, growing up Mormon and eventually coming into full communion with the Catholic Church. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This medical moment brought to you by mylifeangels.com. It's time for Family Man. 
with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Parents often resort to scolding, coaxing, or even bribing to get our kids to help with household chores. But what if I told you there's a more effective approach? The next time your child does anything helpful, pause to appreciate them. Say something like, hey, I noticed you put away your dirty dishes without being asked. Thanks for that. It's really thoughtful and responsible of you. You can even put a cherry on the top of your gratitude with a warm hug, a fist bump, or some other sign of affection. A few words of thanks are much more powerful than a whole paragraph of nagging or criticizing. Over time, you'll notice that these expressions of gratitude not only encourage more helpfulness from your kids, but more gratitude, too. Get more great parenting tips at CatholicHOM.com or check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace or Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and with me, Jeremy Christensen, author of From the Susquehanna to the Tiber. It's his memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church. Well, when did you begin to feel uh, as though Mormonism either wasn't meeting your spiritual needs or you began to sense contradictions in the doctrine? What, what got at you first? So it it started probably around the time that I was in law school, and there were a couple of things that I think converged, Um, one of them being a, as I I sort of detail in the book, I received a a blessing from a a church leader in which they sort of extemporaneously, you know, pronounce a blessing on you in prayer, and uh, among Mormons, you know, there's there's a lot of weight put on that in, in terms of it kind of being like God talking to mm-hmm. you, and, mm-hmm. and uh, things just didn't pan out, what we could say, in terms of, of how that came across, and, and it caused a, some cognitive dissonance pretty right. pretty deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was sort of going on at one level, and then at another level, um, living, I was going to law school in Salt Lake City, and there was also just something in the air at that time, and this was around... 2011, 12, 13, 14, mm-hmm. uh, where because of the rise of the internet, um, making early sources about Mormon history really readily available, it started to have a lot of impact. And there were stories of, of people leaving, kind of large groups of people voluntarily leaving the LDS church uh, over these kinds of historical concerns. There were a couple of uh, very high-profile excommunications of people who kind of prodded into these issues uh, that were reported in the New York Times. So it was sort of in the air. Mm-hmm. And the LDS Church, I think in part to, to sort of get ahead of this problem that they realized was quite big, published a series of essays on their on their website. Quietly, there's a lot of fans here. But they were essays that, that tried to kind of nuance the history uh, to provide a faithful framework for that early history, mm-hmm. but making kind of concessions that the church had not really openly made gotcha. in a very, very long time. You know, sort of uh, an example would be, uh, you know, you might hear as a kid, oh, people sort of slandered Joseph Smith as a treasure digger. And right. Yeah, he, you know, he dug some treasure once like any young kid might do. But that was that, to where the essay is like, well... You know, the 
the presence of folk magic in the northeast United States. Uh, for some reason or other, we're having some technical problems here. Let me see what we can do uh, to make this. We lost your clarity of your voice. So why don't you hold it uh, there? Let's get uh, let's get a hold of Jeremy, see if we can reconnect. Jeremy, you there? Okay, we're going to do our best. I'm not exactly certain what happened, but... Uh, Mormonism teaches. Okay, Jeremy, you back with us? I am back. Oh, good. Uh, I'll stand real. I'll stand still. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was my problem. Oh, okay, that signal right. there. Yeah. So, uh, so Joseph Smith, treasure seeker. Uh, you know, I think there was even yeah, some, some jail documents so the, that show that he'd been fined for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, there, you know, there there are documents of uh, court records from a trial in 1826 in, in Bainbridge, Bainbridge. yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And, uh, you know, the church started sort of admitting these things much more openly, and, and it just really caused me to think uh, and that, on a number of issues. And, and one day I just sort of had a click that said internally, if it weren't true, wouldn't you really want to know that? Yeah, and I, yeah. I sort of let myself actually think that, and and I decided to to actually sit down and study and engage, and and at the end of that process, I you know I came out uh, very very sure that um, the kind of presuppositions of my testimony were not were not true, and and I don't think I would have ever interpreted that experience as as being from God if I had known that information going in. Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, did you then disengage? How did you disengage? Because your family's involved, right? Yeah, it was very complicated. So, at this point, I I married, I have four children, and my wife and my children are all very active Mormons, and my kids are being raised in the LDS Church, and, you know, I had that conversation, very difficult conversation with my wife, and... um, at, at that point, it was more, I I continued to go, but I had completely stopped believing. Yeah. I, I helped take the kids. You know, Mormon Church at the time was a three-hour block of meetings on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I would help take the kids and wrangle them, and and I, I would just tell church leaders, like, don't put me in any position where I would ever have to teach anything. And, mm-hmm. but, but as time went on, you know, that, that became more and more difficult as my children got got older, and as I would hear things get taught at church that I knew were not true or incorrect, and you know, it was a very frustrating and, and difficult um, time, and, and really it was a dark time internally, spiritually, because I still believed in God in a very kind of vague sense, uh, but, you know, I had my, sort of my whole world pulled out from under me. Yeah. Yeah, is what it felt like. It was so, very, so very you dark hadn't time. you hadn't been attracted by uh, the Catholic faith at that point. No, I, I very distinctly remember my wife asking me in some of these early conversations. Once I had kind of dropped the bomb on her, are are you going to join another church? And I said, no, no, I I I had no no intention or, or really desire uh, to mm-hmm. look at or join any other. Yeah. any other church. So what What finally you opened the door uh, to the Catholic faith? So when, um, 
I was sort of going through this process for some time of, of thinking if there was a way I could, I could have my own eclectic version of Mormon belief. That's gotcha. just my own sort sure. of cafeteria style. Yep. Um, and I stumbled across uh, writings I'd never heard of, uh, let alone read, which were the, the apostolic fathers and the church fathers more generally. <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting. And, and I, and I, I bought a copy of the church fathers and I thought, well, I'll read these earliest ones and see what things I might pick and choose from what early Christians believed that might fit my own, you know, sensibilities. Sure. And wasn't expecting, was not investigating Catholicism or anything like that. I just picked up the fathers and, and started reading them chronologically. And it did not take very long for me to to feel very uncomfortable because uh, they, I there was just such a prominent theme that um, I was very shocked that these people were Catholic. I wasn't quite sure what I was expecting, but but that's what I got. Did did that? Did you conclude that there had been no great apostasy? Well, I certainly had come in saying I'm, you know, I'm going to be skeptical about the claim which is, you know, ultimately a theological claim that there's been a great apostasy. And I imagine that early Christian history was, you know, uh, like any kind of history, pretty messy. And in in some sense it it is. Uh, So I wasn't going looking to prove or disprove any apostasy. I was more like realizing I didn't really know anything about early Christianity. (laughs) I I was at a a lunch one time in this period, and a friend of mine who's who's now a very dear friend, uh, who's a faithful Catholic, had, he was asking me some questions about Mormonism, and he said, oh, so it's, it's kind of like Arianism, how, how you conceive of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And I said, I don't even, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and, sure. and so, yeah, it was this sort of discovery of, of the, the world of early Christian history that, that I had really not known anything about. Um, so did you, did you find support for, for your spiritual hunger uh, at, at somewhere? I mean, uh, the, the idea of the forgiveness of sins, or, you know, where do you go to for confession, or what was on your mind? That was definitely on my mind, and I think was a was an issue that, that drove me in some way of just realizing I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I don't, I don't, I don't quite know or, or understand how to make sense of my relationship with God. Um, and and so in that process, I started, you know, I studied, I, I was very intellectually suspicious um, and and sort of wanted to be sure of certain things in my mind. Mm-hmm. But once I had kind of cleared that hurdle, I started attending um, after about a year, and I went to a Catholic Mass. I'd never been to, to a Mass before. And it, it uh, happened to be the extraordinary form of the Mass, the mm-hmm. traditional Latin Mass. And I was just just blown away by the beauty of Catholic liturgy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just really sort of transported me in a way, and I think helped move, you know, the other the other part of us that, the, uh, of our will that that needs to be involved in order to to consent to propositions of the faith and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that sort of encounter discovery yeah. uh, with beauty was was pretty important. Yeah. Um, in 
do you begin re- at some point you become familiar with John Henry Newman? I don't know how much you read of him, but yeah, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so I as I'm sort of going through this, and I started to decide I'm going to really think about Catholicism and think about its early history and study it. Uh, I, I started to read um, John Henry Newman. I read his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which yeah. he began while he was still Anglican, mm-hmm. uh, and and was just extremely moved and impressed by the intellectual rigor and the sophistication yeah. of yeah. his treatment of, of early Christian history, yeah. and, and being able to think maturely about the faith and its history and, um, you know, his properly understood, you know, his, his theory of development mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. was very um, interesting to me and helping me to sort of make sense of, you know, because as I read the Church Fathers as an outsider, I said, these people look really Catholic. Not everything, you know, there are lots of things in the Church Fathers that get taught that are, that are not you know, Catholic right. Catholic doctrine, they, they're not perfect. and But you see this sort of movement, this pattern, but to hear John Henry Newman kind of explicate it in that famous analogy of, of the the identity between the acorn and, and the, the oak tree. Yeah, it's very important. You know? That was very important to me, too, as I was coming into the Church. Yeah. Yeah, this sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's the natural outgrowth. Yep. of the revelation uh, uh, that God gave us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the, the Catholic Church is just this natural unfolding of that, and, you know, that was very, very important to me. Did you have—we've uh, got about 90 seconds left. Did, did you have any problem because of the uh, sexual abuse uh, issues in the Catholic Church? Uh, it certainly, you know, that 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 really came to the forefront uh, uh, in the summer of 2018, and that was certainly a difficulty for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having sort of read my way in, yeah, some of the, you know, you become very familiar with the difficulties the church has faced over mm-hmm. over many many centuries, and in... this too shall pass. <laughs> when were you received in full communion? I, I was baptized on uh, November the 4th, 2018, so just over four years oh, ago. Okay. And, uh, it's, uh, well, uh, the music's coming up, but uh, how's the family doing? They are all good, and I'm happy to report, uh, you can read the book, they are all now Catholic as well. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, thanks. Wonderful talking with you today. Thank you so much, Al. God bless. Jeremy Christensen, From the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office and describe a litany of trouble about this long. 
Then they'll say this. I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there. He's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> It's a rationale. It may provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Thank you so much. Good being with you. I'm Al Cresta, and uh, let me remind you, you can follow up on any of our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. It's easy to do. AveMariaRadio.net, and you can go there. You'll get follow-up information on all of our guests and our topics. Just go to the Cresta Guest Archives, upper right-hand corner of the homepage there. And you can also go to the online bookstore. We're trying to make it easy for you to order the books that we talk about here. Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, it's sitting there in the online bookstore. Really, it, it's a, it is a great book, and it's, if you have an interest in defending the faith— This is one of those books that will help you uh, deal with, you might call it cultural apologetics, right? That, in other words, the argument on the truth of the Christian faith based on its impact on human culture. Also, Jeremy Christian has written From the Susquehanna to the Tiber. It's a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Catholic Church. It's there, too. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.